So I just overheard in the hallway at work that printed books are once again outselling digital copies. That's good news for those of us that like to build personal libraries. But whether you prefer a nook or a book, reading is still a great way to explore new ideas. And Colleen Grissom knows a thing or two about books. Welcome to Trinity University's Learning Together podcast series. I'm Nathan Cohn, class of 1995, your host. I work at Texas Public Radio in San Antonio, where we sometimes characterize what NPR does as the nation's biggest continuing ed course. That's why I'm excited to be introducing this series, featuring faculty, alumni, and other guests who have established themselves as experts in their fields. Today, you'll enjoy a conversation on Trinity icon and professor of English Colleen Grissom's love of reading and her recommended reading lists. Dr. Grissom's former student, Naomi Shiab Nye, class of 74, who's a renowned poet and writer, will engage her in the conversation. Colleen, what a treat to be with you today. Same here. I have admired you for so long, and I admire your literary tastes and your encouragement to other readers and students and community. It's a beautiful gift you give us all, reminding how much there is to discover in the fabulously rich world of fiction. Thank you for all you do. It's a great joy. I am curious about your earliest, people always ask me this about poetry, but what is your earliest deep memory of experiencing relief or uplift or fascination through a book? I guess I was preteen, and I was then and am now a bookworm. My mother had a shelf very decoratively encouraging us with condensed books from Reader's Digest, and I think I may have begun reading those against her knowledge or will. It was not a time when people bought books in my family. I was born in the first Great Depression in 34, but we did go to the public library and check out books. But Naomi, for me, from the get-go, I would sit down and start reading and not look up. I sat in a big stuffed chair with my legs thrown over the side, and at some point in my life began to suck on lemons during the uh, process of reading, which explains the fact that the only really good teeth I have are those the dentist provided me. And in the x-rays they take, it's a horror to see. You look like a maladjusted zombie, you know what I mean? (laughs) But um, my mother used to say when I would be reading, as a preteen, I believe Colleen has gone up to her room. Well, there was no room to go up to in our little shanty house, but I was left. I had left them. So I have always done it. I went through these periods of just complete involvement in books about the big fishermen and Thomas Costain and all the Prince of Castile, and I have always been a reader. What a beautiful image. To, we go up to our room, whether or not we have a room up exactly. there anywhere, When we read, we enter another reality, another space, another time. I'm very curious these days when the nonfiction of the world leaves us in a sense of dismay, disarray, disconnect. Despair. Despair. (laughs) Yes. How do you see the function of fiction in days like these? Has it become more important to have a room to go up to? I have not done as much reading this past year. I did not. I'm doing a lot of reading this summer just because one day I woke up and thought, I can't do this to my body, to my mind, to my spirit. So I started reviewing some of the reviews in the New York Times of books that I had thought at the time, I might want to read this. So I have literally been reading all summer long, finishing one book, closing it, opening the next book, and beginning again. 
because it is such a, I think the awful word is, it's an escape, but it also makes me aware that there is beauty in the world, that there are good people in the world. And I have a great proclivity for horrible TV shows like Criminal Minds because horrible, horrible things happen, but good always triumphs over evil. So I think I have an inclination for books like that. Mm-hmm. All the John Sanford Prey books, P-R-E-Y, Sudden Prey, Bloody Prey, mm-hmm. Messy Prey, Golden Prey, I've read them all. They're wonderful. Fascinating. But they're hideous. Mm. But good triumphs, and that's my belief. But the thing which had taken you away from reading as much fiction as you normally might was being drenched in the news and keeping up with the news. I became obsessive. I, I still am fighting it. I get up and turn on my fill the bird feeders, clean out the litter boxes, clean up after the dogs, and then look at the news headlines on everything from Washington Post to New York Times to Express News. I'm trying hard not to read everything because it just makes me crazy. Right. Have you felt your own reading habits change with the the advent of the dubious but precious Internet? I mean, I love it that so much is available to us at our fingertips. Quickly, you hear of an artist you've never heard of before. You can go look them up. A musician... I can read The Guardian, my favorite paper. But have your reading habits changed because you have all this available now? It enriches my reading, I think. I say to my students sarcastically, I hope you'll do some research on this. And I do research in quotes, and what they know I mean is no longer go to the library and pull the microfiche, but go to the Internet and Google it for us. In fact, in class, when we're arguing about something, there's always some person who will pull out an iPhone and, do research, and tell us who did what when. So I do find that it enriches it when I get an idea from the reading, or I wonder, is she just making this up? And I go back and, no, she's not making this up. This did, in fact, happen. An example of that is King's book, which is entitled Euphoria, which is loosely based, but not all that loosely, on the life and romances and research of Margaret Mead. And so when I was reading Euphoria, which I'm teaching in my contemporary lit class this fall, I wanted to know how much of this is true and how the author changes what is true so that I'm not sure which is right. I think I vaguely think maybe what King says, Lily King says, is really what Margaret Mead was like. Mm. It's fascinating to do and to have, as you say, an added level of enrichment to the reading that I'm doing. Are you worried at all about the use of library matter for research with your students? I mean, we have to push them there sometimes. I've quit letting my students do any kind of research i become the weird kind of teacher. I no longer stand and lecture as I did when I was young. This is what the poem means. This is what Margaret Atwood was saying. I don't do that, and I don't let them do that. I sit in a circle with them, and we all share our ideas. And I encourage them from day one to make some notes as they're reading, to uh, candidly, not confrontationally, share their points of view, even if they're not the same as mine. I tell them that does not frighten me since I know that my ideas are right and yours are (laughs) wrong. But it is wonderful to see them for the first time in some of their lives to be able to have their opinion of a passage valued and their interpretation accepted. I'll say, you know, that's kind of stupid, but I could see why you would think that. And they feel okay about it after a while. You encourage them to have their own relationships with what they read. Exactly. How crucial. So it sounds as if your style of teaching has really evolved. It has evolved greatly because I used to know everything, and I would stand <laughs> and tell them everything, and I would wear 
Ferragamo shoes and Julian Gold dresses. Now I come shuffling in and, you know, not T-shirts yet, but I'm very close. Well, you know, they love you so much. People are always making testimonials. I've heard so many over the decades of how you changed them as readers, as thinkers. And that's such a gift to be able to connect with people in that realm. And as you say, encourage their own responsive courage. I love to do that. And that's why they don't do research. Their paper assignments these days are one page, typed, double-spaced, reasonable font for the aged. And they are to select a really minuscule passage from the novel and examine it. Why did they like it? Why did they engage them? Why did they think it was a crock? What about it uplifted them, depressed them, challenged them? And they get really good at that. So don't tell me what happens in the story. I even understand that. I can follow the plot. That's fabulous. So it's, it's great fun. They are so lucky. They don't know that yet, but I think some of them do. Do you always finish the books you start reading? It's really hard for me not to finish I was raised in the Great Depression. You mm. eat everything on your plate. I have always finished every book I've started. I had trouble just this week. I was reading, I can't even tell you the author's name, a book entitled Less, L-E-S-S. It's a story of a 50-year-old gay man whose lover has decided to marry another man. And so he, Less, accepts all these ridiculous speaking engagements, judging engagements, for because he's, a, he's a, a writer. He's written one successful book. And I was, I just thought, this is just ridiculous. Who cares about the life of a middle-aged, unsuccessful writer? And it suddenly just hooked me. It is hilarious and has the most unbelievably vivid and fresh imagery and similes I have seen. I laughed so loud, as I say, I make the dogs bark because I'm reading on my red leather Copenhagen sofa in the study surrounded by posters of Bette Midler and a few of Margaret Atwood. And the dog's sake, could you just keep it down? But less <laughs> is great. Less is great. Okay, I'll look for I'm going you to You must find it. it. You must find it. Is Bette Midler a big reader? Yes. She's a very intellectual woman, a very smart woman. I love her, too. I, I do. She's we have a mutual amazing. friend who knows her, and who was going to get me a personal one-on-one -on -one with her, Joe Armstrong, a Trinity graduate. But then oh. she got a new assistant who didn't like Joe, so I've never met Miss Midler personally. But she would like me. I think she would like you tremendously. And Joe did get her to send me a signed 8 by 10 one time in which she wrote, Ah, oh, I'm also a Ph.D., pretty hot and divine. I love her. Why doesn't Trinity just invite her? Oh, we could Artist in residence. We could not afford her. You think? Yeah. Think of the people we had back in the day. Uh, I remember Dave Middleton, a retired member of the faculty in English, used to tell us that I think he said, we paid to get some African-American woman named Morrison here for, we paid her $2,000. Wow. You couldn't get Toni Morrison to, you know, step right. into your car for $2,000. But we had, uh, we've had some of the greatest and the best. That's been one of the joys of working at Trinity is all the great writers I have known from the steering series. I have taken Saul Bellow to the river. I've had a dinner party for John Updike. I watched Susan Sontag knock back straight tequila at my favorite restaurant, the little Mexican restaurant, Los Barrios. I had Jane Smiley's husband trying to negotiate some more money for her. I have had Kurt Vonnegut in my backyard at a picnic. I mean, just think of that. We can't get those people anymore. First of all, they're mostly dead. But aside from that, their prices are so high. Wow. And Margaret Atwood is my favorite of all of them because she and I have remained friends all these years.
That's beautiful. It's beautiful for me. Well, I know from having been there how much Margaret Atwood values you as well. And I'm sure any writer, any of the people you named who've been in your yard or in your company feel so lucky to have encountered you. You probably put Texas on the map for them. Oh, I hope so. I'm sure you did. Hello, this is Danny Anderson, president of Trinity University. Thank you for listening to the Learning Together podcast series brought to you by Trinity's Office of Alumni Relations and Development and produced here on campus by our friends at KRTU 91.7 FM. We're so glad you tuned in today and we appreciate your continued support of lifelong learning at Trinity University. Welcome back to the Learning Together podcast from Trinity University. I'm Nathan Cohn. Let's return to our conversation with Colleen Grissom and Naomi Shiab Nye talking about their favorite books of fiction. I uh, have a problem reading books that people send me. You're going to love this. I like to select the book myself. I like, again, the old-fashioned feel, heft. It's embarrassing and extravagant to tell you, but you already guess. I buy the hardback, but I read the Kindle. But I will always read, and when I can no longer read, I will listen to books, as many people do. I do make a long commute uh, to to Trinity to teach, but I never have listened to books because I know I wouldn't get out of the car when I got here in spite of my responsibilities. I've always been so grateful for the list you send out um, to your friends, colleagues, associates at holiday time, um, and thank you for that, reminding us Um, No matter how much we have read ourselves, there's always more. Uh, Usually there'll be a few of the books on your favorite favorite list that I've read. But I keep the list so that I could, you know, look for the books later. And uh, it's such a gift to have books and films recommended by people we value. When the um, Cancer Therapy and Research Organization, for which I've done their book and author luncheon, their big fundraiser for 25 years, for the 25th year, they surprised me last year by uh, asking me, saying we're doing a review of the speakers uh, and want to know what's your favorite book in the whole wide world, which you're asked, I'm sure, all the time, too. And uh, I said my favorite book in the whole wide world, because I have practiced it as well, is Charlotte's Web. And so uh, they said, thank you so much. And then at that ceremony, Naomi, Bill Henrich handed me a first edition of Charlotte's Web with a uh, shadow box, which I have. It is the most wonderful present I think I've ever gotten in all my life. Oh, that gives me goosebumps. Is that just wonderful? That is Charlotte's so Web. beautiful. And whenever I do feel obliged to teach grammar or to come in and whine about the lack of correct grammar, my book is always Elements of Style, written by Strunk and E.B. White. Don't use the passive voice verb. Be conscious that your writing contains simplicity, euphony, and clarity. That's all you need. Beautiful. But I love Charlotte's Web. I adore Charlotte's Web. And you know, I'm sure the backstory that they didn't, his editor's publisher did not want him to let Charlotte die. Exactly. And they had this exchange of letters. I love his book of letters. Yes, I have to read those. Oh, so fabulous. But the arguments they had, and he said at one point, if you won't let me kill her off. Mm-hmm. I don't have a story, and you can't publish my mm-hmm. book. And I'm sure you know that story, too, about his postmaster at the little post office there in the town said that whenever he would bring in his 
new essay to send in to the New Yorker um, in a big brown envelope. They would keep it under the counter. They wouldn't put it in the mailbag because they knew he would return two, three hours later and ask for it back so he could make some make corrections. Revisions, <laughs> corrections. Make revisions and corrections. And that suggests to me yeah. how alive he was uh, with his writing. Well, doesn't anyone, including Naomi Shihab Nye, think that the correcting part, the reading of proof, the going back and polishing and honing the phrasing, one of the most important things? It's the most important thing, and it's also the most fun thing. It is. It which is. I did not know as a Trinity student. Oh, I bet but, not, yeah. Just all of a sudden you think, how could I have written that when this is so much right. what I want to say? Yes. If students could only believe in that possibility, yes. you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. Right. All the writers you love would right. urge you, except maybe Jack Kerouac for a period. Yes, perhaps. Would urge you yes. to, you know, write it out and then go back to it and make it better. Chop it up. Work, it, work on it. Sometimes I meet adults who, well, they haven't read as much as they would have liked to have read. Mm-hmm. You know, they have this guilt hanging over them. Mm-hmm. I've never mm-hmm. been, I've always wanted to read more than I do, but I was so caught mm-hmm. up in my life mm-hmm. and my work mm-hmm. and my children. It's never too late, right? You it's never start. too late. And one of my delights lately, Naomi, is friends whose husbands belong to book clubs. My book clubs, that uh, my literary excursions, I call them, will have 48 women and two men. Yes. But I have several uh, I would call them, I guess, millennials, whose young millennial husbands, who are very busy, successful professionals, have a male book club. And uh, sometimes they'll ask me to recommend a book, so I'll give them Peter Heller. You know, that'll, that'll get them. It's never too late. You just have to not do the old-fashioned thing of high school that you got to finish it no matter what. You've got to give it a chance, but at a certain point, you realize you're just skimming the pages and it means nothing to you. Put it aside and pick up another one, you know? Read some reviews, talk to some friends that you admire. Do you still like the idea of like going to a bookstore or a library and stumbling upon a book? I no, do. That delight of discovering someone you've never heard right. of, right. for some reason this book calls out to you. Right. Well, I've also had great fun with uh, helping the McNay with their Art for Wednesdays. The education director, Kate Carey, gives me an assignment. I don't get any uh, choice of it. And what she's trying to do is have me read short stories that have some relevance to an exhibit that's about to happen at the McNay. So most recently, I did a series of short stories with them on the Mexican-American experience because they have a Chuck Ramirez exhibit coming up. But the one for the spring, I just think, what am I doing with my life? She wrote me and said, I want it to be about fear. It should be about uh, mental disease because they're going to have some uh, Tim Burton exhibits and things. Do you know how crazy I felt finding stories that deal with fear and terror and going back to books that scared me to death when I was younger? I went to the Bernie Library and found Don't Look Now by Daphne du Maurier, which was also made into a wonderful, wonderful film. And I found Ray Bradbury's Dandelion Wine, which has a chapter in it, which I remember as if I read it yesterday. Wow. The last line is, the man in the room behind her cleared his throat. Does that scare you? It yeah. should. So, it, so, so you go back to things as well as you find new things. Colleen, could you give us maybe a list of some of your favorite women writers whom you think we should not be missing? I happen to have prepared one, but what I didn't prepare was this wonderful fact. I have met five of the ten personally, because they were here as guests of the Steering Arts Enrichment Program. This is a list of contemporary women writers 
whose every work I try to read, which is a kind of compulsive, but well worth my while. So everybody get your pencils out. Yes. Margaret Atwood, Louise Erdrich, Elizabeth Strout. Her newest, Anything is Possible, is superb. She wrote Olive Kittredge, which you will remember. Anne Patchett, Toni Morrison, Elizabeth McKenzie. Her new book is entitled The Portable Veblen. Remember Veblen, the sociologist, Conspicuous Consumption? Well, it's my kind of book because her central character, whose name is Veblen, talks to squirrels. Jean-Paul Lahiri, who's just exquisitely uh, gifted as a writer. Jennifer Egan, who keeps taking risks and using eccentricities that are fabulous. Zadie Smith, who was at Trinity last year, I think. Hilary Mantel, the great writer of uh, British history, turned into fine literature. Anne Beatty, whose short stories keep coming. Joy Williams, who has a new collection called 99 Stories of God, which is very short and very concerning, but fascinating. Laurie Moore, who's a better short story writer than a novelist. The great Alice Munro, who is Margaret Atwood's dear friend. They sent me, everybody I think saw a YouTube thing of the two of them sipping champagne after Munro won the uh, Nobel just before that singer did. And then uh, the, the deceased Lucia Berlin, who I just discovered a, a few months ago, whose work is fascinating. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I love my being pleasure, with you, My pleasure, my pleasure. It's a joy to and be with you. And thank you for your gift of encouragement to all of us over the years. Thank you. And thank you for your gift of Naomi Shihab Nye and her poetry. Thank you so much for listening. Today's podcast was recorded and produced by Trinity University's KRTU radio station for the Office of Alumni Relations and Development. New podcasts will be released on the first Tuesday of each month. For more information about our Learning Together podcast series or to suggest topics for future consideration, email us at alumnipodcast at trinity.edu.